0: Hello. There we go. Okay, now we are officially on. Hey, real fast, before we start, could we give Matthew a hand? He does a great job up here. Silent but deadly guy. Everybody having a good morning? Everybody ready to worship? We're going to take it off kind of mellow. Just have a little fun with this. Is kind of mellow now, kind of in the mood. All right, I'm going to capo up here and I'm going to feature Mr. Brad Johnson back there, our worship leader on many occasions. Is everybody okay here? Everybody? You having a good day? Okay. Just want to be sure. By the way, I also want to say um, we had a worship service or a send-off for Merv Grivey yesterday and if you didn't know Merv he was a blessing and yesterday was awesome it was uh, we were talking about it in the back it just what a blessing what a clean wonderful send-off and so um, dedicate this next song to Merv
1: A simple song of love to my savior, to my Jesus. I'm grateful for the things you've done, my loving Savior, precious Jesus. My heart is glad that you've called me your own. There's no place I'd rather be than in your arms of love. In your
2: arms of love.
1: Still holding me near In your arms of love I sing a simple song of love Savior To my Jesus I'm grateful For the things you've Done My loving Savior Precious Jesus My heart Is glad That you've called me no place I'd rather
3: You are God in heaven, and I am here on earth, so I let my word of all love songs I want to bring to you So I'll let my words be few hey. Jesus I
0: So true, just keep our mouths shut and just concentrate on God.
4: Well, good morning. We got, we got Sherry, where are you? Alright, come on. I would like to introduce to you somebody that is incredibly important to our church, although many times you don't get to see her on a Sunday because she's across the street loving on our kids on the next generation. This is Sherry Rothenberg, she is our family's pastor, and I'm going to have her share a little bit about opportunities that you have to invest. You're welcome.
2: Hi, everyone. Hi, Sherry. (gasps)
5: Sorry. It is busy over there this morning. Okay, so I only have a couple minutes, so I'm going to get right to the point. This container of marbles contains 936 marbles. I know because I counted them. From the day a child is born to their high school graduation, we, as human beings, have 936 weeks with each child. Now we know, as parents, our parenting doesn't stop on their 18th birthday, right? But those first 18 years are super important because we have the chance to speak into them. Once they get past 18, they're grown-ups, kind of, right? They can do what they want. All right. However, that also means that we as a church only have 936-ish hours with them before they, turn, before they graduate high school, and that's not that much time when we start to think about it. I know for me with Dylan, I think I only have like 156 weeks left. And that like makes me want to throw up. Am I allowed to say that? Anyways. <laughs> so with the amount of time that we have been given as a church, as family, as any human being who comes into contact with someone under the, 18, with someone under the age of 18, we have a divine responsibility to teach them about Jesus. That is our responsibility as people of faith, as the church, right? And now being told that you have a divine responsibility probably sounds like a pretty daunting task. So let me tell you what a divine responsibility to our children and youth looks like. It looks like Nerf Wars for kids night out. It means summer Olympics on Sunday mornings with games and gold medals, park days after church, beach bonfires on Friday nights. It means going to support members of the youth group who are in their high school play, going out to eat as a group after youth group, inviting them to sit at your table. All it means is showing up. It doesn't mean teaching the most impactful lesson It doesn't mean being a Bible scholar, child professionals. It just means showing up. In Matthew 19, Jesus says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. Church, if we don't have enough people across the street, we are hindering them. If we're not bringing our kids to church, our kids in our family, our kids in our community, if we're not bringing them, we are hindering them. Jesus says, do not. In Matthew 28, Jesus said, go and make disciples among the nations. There are kids in the nations, you guys. It's not just grown-ups. And I know that coming into contact with anyone under the age of 18 right now can sometimes not be great. Monday through Friday, I'm a substitute teacher, and it is not always great. Right? but it is my divine responsibility. It is our divine responsibility to teach these kids about Jesus. Now my job in this moment, in this time and place here at Lighthouse is not just to be across the street and teach the kids. It is also to come alongside our families, whatever that looks like, aunts, uncles, grandparents, step-parents, anyone who comes into contact with a child during the week. It is my job to come alongside you and share resources and what's working and what's not working. And in 2022, there is so much that is not working. And we don't have the answers and we don't know where to find the answers. But we do know that here in this place is the answer that each kid needs. And when I'm talking about kids, I don't just mean preschool and elementary, I am also talking about our youth. Josh is doing a phenomenal job with our youth. Our youth group has grown. Our young adults have grown. I know that from experience, my kids are hanging out. Josh picked him up on Friday night. (laughs) It's so important to just show up. Now I'm not saying that I am an expert in family as I come alongside of you. I just ask my family, I'm not. But I am an expert in knowing that if we do not start pouring into our kids and families in our community, that we are going to lose the opportunity to teach this next generation about Jesus. Church, we cannot do that. We cannot allow one more minute to go by without reaching the kids and youth in our church, in our communities, in our homes for Jesus. At some point, I always tell the kids in my ministry that I don't care if you remember my name, the curriculum that we use, the games we played, or the songs we sang. My goal is that every child, youth, who come into contact with this place is that they will leave knowing that they are a child of God, that they are loved beyond measure, and that this church loves and supports them unconditionally, which means also when they mess up. The only way the next generation is going to know the love, grace, and salvation of Jesus Christ as if we, the church, tell them and show them. In our homes, in our families, in our community, in everything that we do. I promise you they're watching. It may not seem like they're always listening, but they are. All we have to do is show up, invite them to our tables. There are 936 weeks between a time a child is born and their high school graduation. You guys, we can't miss it.
4: Thanks, Sherry. In your uh, bulletins when you came in, on the very front of it, there are a, a list of different needs that we have. Those are the actual, tangible needs that we currently have right now in our children's and youth ministry. So if you are saying, hey, you know, what needs are there? There you go. And if you want to find out how you can sign up, you can just take a picture of the QR code. Can we just turn this down just slightly? Um, You can take a picture of the QR code, and that will then take you to the website where you can find out about how to sign up. With that, uh, we are in this series on neighboring. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked at a conversation that Jesus had with a religious expert where the guy asked him, what's the most important commandment of all of them? If you were to take everything that God has said and all of the directives he's given us, what is the one that rises to the surface that pretty much encapsulates all of it? In other words, he was asking Jesus, what's the purpose of my life? How should I invest it? And this is how Jesus responds to him. He doesn't just give him one commandment, he gives him two. Love the Lord your God with all your everything and love your neighbor as yourself. But as we've discussed over the last several weeks, it's not like he he dodged the question, couldn't boil it down to just one. Those two commandments are like two sides of the same coin. You cannot love God whom you can't see without loving your neighbor or your brother whom you can see. It would be like you telling me, Eric, I really love and respect you while mistreating my children who are sitting near you. They're right there in the middle. Be nice to them. How you treat my kids says more to me about how you feel about me than how you treat me directly. I'm just saying. And, and our Father in Heaven feels the same way. Last week when you got a chance to see, what, like seven or eight of our junior hires, just a handful of the junior hires we've been entrusted with, That is a a tangible reminder of the fact that we have people in our community that God looks at with as much love as I look at those kids and say, this is our investment. I'm so grateful for the way that Sherry and others are investing in the next generation because there is no greater investment than we can make. And the truth of the matter is, God doesn't need a whole lot from us, but there are people all around us who do. There are hurting people all around us. And when I talk about hurting people, hurting neighbors, my guess is you automatically start thinking about people who are financially impoverished. People who either don't have enough income to both pay the bills, put gas in their car, and still put food on the table, who are perhaps in danger of losing their homes, or perhaps are, are, have already lost a place to live and are living on the streets. That's maybe where your mind will go to, but I would like to suggest to you today that there is another group of another group of impoverished people in our community that we often overlook that don't look anything like a homeless person. And if you if they walked in off the street, you would not think twice about the fact that this person has everything they need. And what I'm talking about are people who are not financially impoverished, but rather people who are relationally impoverished, the isolated and the lonely. And that is rampant in our society in ways that it has never been the case, at least in my lifetime before. We were created to do life together, created to do life in community. I know this because in the very opening chapters of the Bible, we see God like this divine artist Painting the world with his words and from time to time as he's speaking the stars into place and as he's speaking the oceans into place and as he's creating animals, he'll step back like like, like he's the painter and and just appreciate the little tree that he just put. Oh, that's good, right? Like he's doing that over and over, but then at the end of, of chapter two, he steps back after having created the first human being, Adam, in his image he steps back and he goes, It's not good. The first thing he declares not to be good in all of his creation, do you remember what it was that he identified as being suboptimal? The fact that Adam was alone. It's not good that a man should be alone. And really, what that reminds us is that we, you and I were created for community. First, community with God. But secondarily, and it's a very, very close second, we were created to do life together. And when we do not do life together, when we buy into the belief that every man can be an island and that we are self-made human beings and we try to be independent and we try to forge ahead on our own, when we buy into that belief, we find, at least scientists are finding, that it has incredibly caustic effects on our lives study after study after study over these last several years having come through covid they're beginning to really do a lot of work on identifying the physical physiological effects of loneliness and isolation and this is what they're discovering let's throw a couple of these things up on the screen they're finding that lonely people report higher levels of, of perceived stress Meaning, that even if you and somebody who is not lonely both encounter the same stressful situation, the person who feels isolated and lonely or alone will experience a greater level of stress. And when you have higher stress, that produces more stress hormones, which increases your blood pressure, it puts greater strain on your heart, and this ultimately, following, does more damage to your heart and your blood vessels, which means that they are finding, that, and this is where the statistics come in, that it increases, loneliness increases your chance of heart disease by 29%. Loneliness and isolation increases your chance of an aneurysm or a stroke by 32%. In other words, two of the things that take out more people in our culture than a lot of other things, it increases it by a third, simply being, by being isolated and alone. But that's not the half of the story. They go on to find that loneliness and isolation leads to a lack or a loss of quality of sleep, both, if it, both in the amount of sleep you get and it's in an effectiveness. And that, for anybody who has ever struggled to sleep, you know that our sleep is incredibly important to our health. So the fact that loneliness and isolation negatively affects our sleep is a really, really bad thing. Furthermore, they found that loneliness and isolation tends to increase levels of anxiety, depression, and even suicide. And this should come as no surprise when we look at the levels of anxiety and depression and suicide that have skyrocketed over the last several years. In part, because of how isolated we really have become. One other thing that they discovered is that loneliness and isolation doesn't just affect you physiologically, it actually makes you more susceptible to other diseases. It lowers or suppresses your immune system so that we're more susceptible to other ailments. There's this professor and sociologist, Dr. Stephen Cole, who's a professor up at UCLA. This is what he writes about the effect of loneliness in our life. Loneliness acts as a fertilizer for other diseases. The biology of loneliness can accelerate the buildup of plaque in our arteries, help cancer cells grow and spread, and promote inflammation in the brain, leading to Alzheimer's disease. Loneliness promotes several different types of wear and tear on the body. In other words, loneliness is more than just a quality of life issue. It is a health issue. And we are living in a world that is becoming increasingly isolated and in a culture where loneliness is becoming more the rule rather than the exception. And so, by the way, this is something that sociologists, as they're discovering, they have a term for what we are experiencing as a culture. They call it relational poverty. By relational poverty, they mean that You can have a lot of stuff. And guys, look around. We have a lot of stuff. You can be surrounded by crowds of people. You can have hundreds or even thousands of friends on social media and still experience relational poverty. You can walk into a church with lots of people sitting within inches of you and still experience relational poverty. You might be going back to work right now and actually interacting with people. But if those people don't actually know you, you might find yourself relationally impoverished. You might be a, a parent who is around other human beings all day long, but you are starving for adult connection, starving for a conversation where you can just be real and honest and not put all your junk on your kids. You could even be happily married or or, or married and running at a million miles an hour trying to take care of your kids or or trying to just do all of the responsibilities, perhaps in order to live in this area, both of you working a full-time job and then you come crashing into the house at the end of the evening, scarfing down dinner and you don't have energy to really connect and go deep. Instead, you just turn on the television or you doom scroll on your phone until you both pass out in a bed, inches apart, but feeling utterly alone. We are surrounded by people who are relationally impoverished, and my guess is it's not just people out there. My guess is there are some of you in here this morning, as I'm describing this, who are experiencing relational poverty in your own life, and it affects you. You might ask yourself, well, how did we get here? And the easy response would be COVID. We can blame it on COVID, but let's be honest. Although COVID has exacerbated this issue, it is certainly not the only reason why we're experiencing it. In fact, there's several different other things that add to it. The first, and I'm just going to identify four others on top of COVID that promote relational poverty in our communities. The first is a breakdown of families. I cannot tell you right now the number of families that my wife and I alone, our family alone is walking with, where the marriage is dissolving. And it doesn't just affect the kids, although it truly does affect the kids tremendously, as, as that, that unified foundation kind of gets pulled out from under them. But consider both of the individuals, both of the people in that couple, not only are you arguing about your stuff, the house, the cars, the dogs, you begin having to try to figure out, well, who gets the, the community? Who gets to hang out with our s- circle of, of friends? Who gets the church? Because it's not like we're going to both go to the same church alone together. And so you find yourself, as you're walking through divorce, becoming incredibly isolated and lonely. Another reason that we're finding that there's a whole lot of this is increased mobility. And what I mean by that is it used to be, and I think of Merv, 94 years he lived in the same city. Actually, I need to correct that because he predated the city by 25 years. But his entire life he lived in the proximity of what we call Costa Mesa. Some people even grew up, raised their own families, and died in the same house that they were born in. But look at our culture today. We're far more transient, particularly for my generation and younger because it's simply become too difficult to afford to live here. And so if you can go three to five years in the same house, in the same neighborhood, that was a good go. And so we find people moving more and more and there's this kind of exodus out of this area, particularly for younger people, to try to find a place where they can afford to live, but look at the consequences of that. When you recognize that you're only gonna be there for a little bit and you're not going to, that that, that's not your forever home, then there's a tendency not to want to really put down deep roots. It's almost like you're living with your bags packed. And because of that, there's very little incentive to really invest in deep relationships with your neighbors or your community, because you're only going to be there for a little longer before you go. And so our communities become more impoverished as people come in, rent for a season, and then are gone. A third reason why we're finding that there is a great amount of relational poverty is simply our increased busyness. We are are busy. Raise your hand if you feel like you're busy right now, that your life is full, And you don't have enough time in the day to do everything you need to do. Yeah, me too. We are busy, and we are becoming more busy. And for those of you who are retired, my guess is you're not less busy than you were when you had a job. You're finding that you've just replaced that one job with a myriad of other responsibilities, and you find yourself busy. And our busyness causes us to become more superficial in our ability to to just be with people and to sink in and 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 make those connections. Where you can just sit with somebody for hours on a porch. And we just don't have that kind of margin because we're always running from one thing to the next. And even when we're not, when, even when we don't have somewhere to go, our minds are still going and we're still thinking of all the things that we need to do. But when we don't have something to do, we have a th- another thing that is pretty relatively new to our culture, but is making a massive impact in our culture, and that is the rise of social media. I like to call it anti-social media because of some of you guys. No, I'm just joking because of me. Social media is a way that we are able to connect with people out in the world. We connect with people from our our grade school, from our high school, from college, with people that used to live in neighborhoods that we used to be. Social media on the surface seems to be a way for us to be more social. And yet, if if I had to liken it to anything, I would liken it to cotton candy. It tastes good in the moment, but it does not have the ability to nourish us in the way that a face-to-face conversation nourishes us. We were created for community. It is not good for us to be alone. And because we're not getting those connections, because we're just skimming off the surface of people's lives and bouncing into people and saying, how are you doing? Good, and then we move on with our life. We're starving for connection. And because we can't get that four-course meal of sitting down with somebody and doing life like we longed for, we just snap. On snippets of social media and we feel or we'll throw up a picture of a pretty flower that we saw or the meal that we're eating or a a funny meme. Maybe that's just me. Um, And then we sit and we wait to see if anybody will respond, if anybody will notice, if anybody will give it a thumbs up or a You know, a comment, or if it's particularly profound, maybe they'll even share it. And that somehow becomes the drip, drip, drip of anesthetization that numbs us to the fact that we are lonely. Am I just speaking to myself? I don't think so. I have a feeling that I'm... I think that there are more of us in here that experience, at least in some part, relational poverty than we would like to admit. And the truth of the matter is, You don't have to just look out there for people who are hurting and lonely. You can look in here. And there is a reason why we as a church place such an emphasis on actually showing up in person. And I know that I'm speaking right now to those of you uh, that are at home who are watching this, uh, you know, whether it's on social media, thank goodness for that medium that allows us to communicate, or on YouTube. What I want to say to you is, I am grateful we can connect in this small way, but in no way does it replace this. Because I will tell you that far greater than even my ability to communicate the Word of God, there, there is something about connecting with people outside of that time. Yes, you can hear the band play worship, and you can join in with them. Yes, you can hear my message, or Jeff's messenger, whomever is speaking. But what you cannot get, what you miss every single week is the along-the-way conversations, the moments of connection, the hugs, the handshakes, the high-fives, the donuts and coffee, although that's a far-distance, you know, secondary to just connecting with somebody that you haven't seen in a while and catching up with them. That is more important than any amount of donuts. That's more important than getting to stay home and watch football or golf. And we're starving for it. There's a reason why we encourage you to get back here on a Sunday morning, even if it requires you to actually comb your hair (laughs) or put on clothes. It's worth it. Not because you get to see me, but because you get to see all of these beautiful people who bring their own imperfections. They are imperfect. They have halitosis, they have bad breath too. Don't worry about it, just show up. Be with the rest of us imperfect people. That's, by the way, that is what we found yesterday as we were celebrating Merv's life. That to me was the biggest reminder. Merv had a a good long life, 94 years. None of us are promised that much time. Except maybe Ben, I think you're pretty much there already. None of us are promised that much time. And Merv collected a lot of things. If you ever went and peeked in his garage, I think only Gary Rorden probably collected more in his garage than Merv. But the thing that every single person had in common was the relationship, the fingerprints, the life on life that you got with Merv. That's something that cannot be replaced and you cannot get on social media. There's also a reason why we place such an emphasis on being a part of a life group, which meets at some point throughout the week, either here at the church or in somebody's home, because that's even better than sitting and listening to me talk, is getting to sit with other disciples of Jesus who are imperfect themselves, who are all pursuing Jesus, and you do it together, and it's where you get to process life. And sometimes it's unpacking the conversation we have from the weekend, but I found in my own life group... Sometimes it looks like just scrapping the curriculum all together and leaning in. I got a beautiful picture of this yesterday when one of the gals in our life group texted us and said, hey, please pray for my husband. He just went in for a massive surgery. It went smoothly, but he's got, a, he's got an incision all the way down his stomach now. And I love the way that our group responded because not only were we like, yes, we're praying, but we, to a person, we're like, hey, can we bring something? Can we bring dinner? Can we just come by? Is there some way that we can be there to support you? That is what community, real community looks like. Not just the superficial, I want to let people know what I'm seeing and what I'm thinking or what I'm eating or where I'm traveling or what funny meme I ran across. When you are truly known, it means that you can open your life up and be vulnerable and invite others to step in and say, I care about you. And I think a lot of us are afraid to do that because we don't want to be a burden on other people who are already busy and overwhelmed themselves. But that's what community is about. And I'm grateful that we experience that here. But since we are talking about this idea of loving God by loving our neighbor, in the same way that you can show me love by loving my kids, let's talk for a moment about how we, the church, remember, it's, a church is not a building. This is just the box that the church hangs out in. You are the church. We are the church. And we continue to be the church when we step out of this place and we walk into our neighborhoods and we go back to our workplaces and we go back to our schools. So how can we love lonely and isolated people in our spheres of influence? as an extension and a reflection of the heart of God? That's the question I wanna grapple with this morning. And there's a lot of ways this can look, but I wanna identify three of them. Three ways that we can tangibly love the lonely in our midst. The first way that we love the lonely is through touch. And I can imagine right now all the husbands in the room are going, yes, I love this, I'm lonely, honey. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? What I'm talking about is the way in which Jesus modeled the importance of connection and the humanizing effect of simply connecting with another human being and letting them know you see them. And the the story that comes to mind automatically is one we've already looked at a couple weeks ago, so I'm not going to have us turn there, but if you want to read it later, it's found in Matthew chapter 8. Jesus has literally just finished preaching the most important sermon ever given in history, the Sermon on the Mount. He's walking down from the crowds that had gathered there, and he and his disciples run across this man who has leprosy, who falls down before Jesus in the dust. And as we've already talked about, lepers were not socially acceptable human beings. People viewed them about the same way as you probably felt towards somebody who got COVID in the early days when we didn't understand it. Like, back away. Don't breathe in my direction. Don't have anything to do with that person. I don't want what you got. But it was more than that because from a spiritual standpoint, lepers were treated as unclean and to even touch a leper would cause you to become ceremonially unclean, which would require a whole lot of effort on your part to cleanse yourself so you could go back into the temple and worship God. Into this, this leper falls down at Jesus' feet and he says, Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And what I love about that story, why it's one of my favorite passages, favorite moments in scripture, is because Jesus could have simply extended a hand and say, I'm willing, be clean. And that guy, I mean, he did it for he did it for people who had demons in him. He did it for people who were physically broken. He did it for the guy who, who got lowered down through the ceiling. A word was enough to heal him. He even raised a guy from the dead by simply speaking a word. He didn't need to get within six feet of that guy. But Jesus did anyway. He moved towards him. Maybe he even knelt down so he was looking him in the eyes and he reached out a hand and he looked him in the eyes as he's touching him on the shoulder. And he says, I'm willing, be clean. And I've asked myself before, you know, why, why did he intentionally make himself ceremonially unclean to heal this guy when he could have just spoken a word? And I would suggest to you because, that it was because leprosy was not his worst ailment, although it was certainly affecting him. I would suggest to you that the greater ailment he was dealing with was relational poverty. This man who had to walk down the streets screaming unclean so that everybody could go to the other side of the street and avoid interacting with him. This man could not be any more lonely, could not be any more isolated. And because of this, he had forgotten that he was even human. And in Jesus touching him, he is communicating to this man, I see you, and you matter to me. My friend Jeannie here sent me an article yesterday by National Geographic of all all places where they were looking at this issue of relational poverty and the effect that touch has on healing. And the last person that they identified and kind of did a pictorial on was this gal who is a hospice nurse. Talk about a painful tear your heart out and stomp on a career to be in right now, right? Because this is a woman who sits with and cares for people in the twilight of their life, and during COVID, she was about the only person that got to interact with them because their own family members couldn't come and sit with them, which let's just say that that was awful. I'm so grateful that yesterday I was able to actually go and see Don Dickey, who's in one of these care facilities, and able to to touch his foot and let him know I'm there, even though he was a little bit out of it at the time, I'm so grateful that we can finally start moving into those places where hurting people are isolated. But for this gal, she was talking about how during the height of COVID, she was the only person interacting with men and women who were in the twilight of their life. Completely covered in PPE gear, right? Because we got to avoid spreading the transmission and I'm all for that. But she admitted that from time to time, she would remove her gloves, she would reach out and put her hand on the arm or on the head of one of her hospice patients towards the end of their time together. And she said, I could always just go and wash my hands right afterwards. But what we needed more than anything was that physical touch to remember that we were both human. We both needed it. It ministered to both of us touch is incredibly important and i will tell you that i think that one of the best things that we have to offer as a church community and one of the reasons why i implore you if you can come back come back is because one thing i can't do is give you a hug one of the things we can't do is greet you with a handshake or a high five, however it is, and I understand that for some people, a hug is like giving them a punch to the face. Like, it's not welcome, and we need to be discerning. We need to ask. We can't just force it upon people, Darlene. (laughs) I'm still trying to get the lipstick out of just about every one of my shirts. I love the way you love, but sometimes we we do need to ask permission and be respectful of people's boundaries, but! as a relationally impoverished society and as people who are isolated throughout the week, we desperately need connection. And that's one of the ways that we minister to one another. But it's not the only way. Another way that we minister to one another is by listening. I want to invite you to turn with me to Job chapter 20. And if you don't know where Job is, just open your Bible in the middle. You'll either hit Proverbs or Psalms. Go left because Job comes right before the book of Psalms. And we're going to go to the beginning of Job, chapter 2. Have you ever, have you ever noticed that most people... When you're talking with them, don't always listen intently. They're not actually hearing what you say so much as they're just biding their time to and, and even perhaps formulating their thoughts on what they're going to tell you when you stop talking long enough for them to get a word in. Maybe they're they're discerning enough that they'll throw an up mm-hmm. Oh yeah, along the way just to let you think that they're actually hearing you. But really what they're doing is they're waiting for their opportunity to fix your problem. Many of the guys in the room are going, What's the problem with that? At least I wait. One of our problems is that we don't actually listen to one another. We just talk at one another. That's probably one of the things that makes social media so antisocial in nature is that we're not actually listening with the intent to understand. We are arguing with the intent to win. We are throwing our pearls of what we think are great insights at one another at high velocity, and it causes everybody to get defensive. And we don't listen to one another very well. One of the things that the Jews understood is that when somebody was hurting, what they did not need were ideas of how to fix it. What they needed was somebody simply to be in proximity to them and listening to them. And so when somebody was going through a great trauma in their life, whether they lost a loved one or they got a really, really hard diagnosis that probably meant that their time was very limited or something else when something traumatic happened in their lives they had this process that they called sitting shiva shiva is the hebrew word for seven so it literally meant sitting for seven days with another human being in the midst of their sadness and their trauma they wouldn't show up with solutions they might show up with dinner And they wouldn't come with lots of words. They would come with two listening ears and a a heart that was willing to just be present in the awkwardness of the silence. And in Job, which is a book that we typically go to to remind ourselves that even good people sometimes suffer and that sometimes well-meaning friends talk a whole lot, the beginning of Job, in Job chapter 2, His three friends hear of what Job is going through, hear how painful it's been. Job is physically hurting. He has lost children. He's had robbers steal most of his stuff. The guy is in dire straits. His three friends hear about it and look at the way that they respond in in verse 11 of Job chapter 2. When Job's three friends, Elphaz the Temnite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Neamite heard about the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. And they began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads as a symbol of their sadness. Verse 13. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Now, if you continue reading, once those seven days are up, they switch gears and things go off the rails, right? Then they start trying to diagnose, and to give solutions, and it doesn't go well for their conversation. If anything, they become more of an an impediment, not helpful in Job's healing process. But for those first seven days, they come with a posture of care, compassion, and a willingness to listen. And I just imagine for a moment just imagine, in, in a moment, I want you to t- pause for a moment and think back to a traumatic moment in your life. Maybe it was the death of a parent. Maybe it was the loss of a child. Maybe it was a diagnosis you received. Think to a moment that was traumatic for you and just imagine either who was it that showed up well Or what would it have been like to have somebody show up in that moment without a solution, simply being present and reminding you, you are not alone. Ten years ago, my wife's water broke 13 weeks prematurely. We rushed down to Sand Canyon for whatever reason. Every single one of the pregnancies, we had four. Two of them ended in in miscarriage. Two of them ended in very rowdy children. Um... But this was for our second born, Grayson, and we, it happened in the dead of night, and we rushed down to Sand Canyon, Kaiser, which is where we had prepared to bring him into the world. We toured the hospital, we were ready for it. When we got down there, 13 weeks too soon. And the doctors realized that they were not situated to be able to care for my wife for the potential three months before Grayson would enter into the world. So they then shipped her up to a hospital in Yorba Linda. It was a hospital that was about to be replaced by a newer one they were building. So it was one of the last pregnancies that took place in that place. We were shipped to the NICU up there. And I found myself at probably around 1130 at night sitting in the cafeteria of a, a hospital in your Belinda that I'd never stepped foot in before. I don't go to your Belinda. That feels like going to LA, like it's far for me. I walked to, to, to church this morning. I intentionally live within proximity of where I do life. So this was out of my comfort zone. And I was completely and utterly alone. My wife was sedated and finally sleeping. They'd gotten the contractions under control. Didn't look like Grayson was going to be born that night, thank the Lord. And here I am sitting in the cafeteria alone. My entire world is spinning. Grateful that I was able to find somebody to, to come over and watch Ethan, who was sleeping in his bed at home and had no idea that his mom and dad's, that, that, that our whole family's life had irrevocably changed in that moment. I'm the only one in the entire cafeteria. It's all shut down, they're not serving food. And in walks, in walks a guy named um, Jeremy King. He was a a pastor in the area, wasn't a friend, he was more of an acquaintance if anything, but he had seen on social media that uh, we were going through something traumatic and he and his wife had gone through something traumatic prior to and he decided to drive half an hour up to a hospital in the middle of nowhere to sit with an acquaintance in his moment of need. Jeremy showed up. He didn't come with solutions, even though he'd walked through something similar. He just showed up, and he sat there. He looked me in the eyes, and he goes, I'm so sorry. And he gave me space to process my pain. Jeremy ministered to me that night in ways that I, I appreciate. Like we're... Having people who are, are willing to enter into the messiness, that's rare. I mean, in our society, we almost feel like it's socially rude when you ask, hey, how you doing? And somebody, if you respond with anything other than fine or good, it's almost like you slap that person in the face. Cause like, and we don't, we're, we have trained ourselves Your world could be imploding, and somebody goes, how you doing? Good. How's your family? Fine. And you know it's not fine. But quite honestly, it's overwhelming to you. You don't want to put that on anybody else, right? That would be rude, we think. But what would it look like to be the kind of people who don't let people off with fine? To be the kind of people who look another human being in the eyes and say, how are you really doing? Knowing that it might take a while for them to articulate it. And it might be a little messy. In order for us to really be able to listen to another human being, it's going to require the third thing I want to identify this morning. And that is a willingness to be interruptible. As I've mentioned earlier, one of the primary reasons why we struggle as a community with connection and relationship and being known is because we are simply too busy. And we are. There are so many things demanding our attention. But if we really wanna be able to love lonely people, we need to slow down long enough to be able to see lonely people and to recognize pain in someone's eyes even when their mouth is suggesting they're okay. You know the people who smile with their mouth but not with their eyes? That is a sign that everything is not okay. And when that happens, it requires us to be interruptible. I want to invite you to turn with me to the last place we're going to go, Matthew chapter 20. Jesus, obviously, is the example for us in interruptibility. Jesus lived an incredibly busy life. He was constantly being called upon, particularly as his notoriety, his popularity began to grow. People were clamoring for him. But time after time he shows himself regardless of when he's going somewhere else he shows himself to be interruptible when he has one of those along the way interactions we saw that with the leper If there was ever a time he could have said hey I, I, I got somebody else deal with this I got other places to go and people to see and, and I got to rest cuz I just that was that was a lot it would have been then but he allowed himself to be interruptible but that was not an exception, that was how he lived his life. There are so many other examples of Jesus' interruptibility. I just want to show you one. Matthew chapter 20, the very end of it. We start reading in verse 29. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Like, maybe this guy can actually help us more than just throwing coins to help feed our bellies. Maybe this guy can actually give us what we really need, our sight. The crowd, however, did not feel that their need was worthy of the master's time, so the crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. Don't interrupt Jesus! He's got more important places to go and people to see. But they shouted all the louder, "'Lord, Son of David, have mercy!' On us, I love the way, by the way, that Jesus' closest companions felt like they needed to protect Jesus from people. And Jesus constantly had to remind them, no, it's for the people that I've come. Like, don't forget where I found you. Don't ever think that it's only the important or only the socially connected or only the beautiful people or only the wealthy people that matter to me. Those who are hurting... Those are the ones I've come for. So Jesus, not surprisingly, Jesus stopped and he called out to them, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, they answered, we want our sight. And Jesus had compassion on them and he touched their eyes and immediately they received their sight and followed him. This is one of many examples of Jesus living a busy life, but an interruptible life. Now, did he help every single hurting person in Israel, and every single Gentile, and every single Samaritan? No, he did not. If we felt obligated to help every hurting person in this city, we would be overwhelmed and our children would never see us. But what Jesus did is Jesus trusted the the direction of the Holy Spirit. And when he encountered somebody in need and the Holy Spirit put that person on his heart, he was willing to pause, hit hit the pause button on whatever he was doing and enter into relationship with that person, if only for a moment, to look them in the eyes, oftentimes to reach out and touch them on the shoulder, show them that they mattered, and address their need. And I will tell you, that's exactly what Jeremy did for me 10 years ago at 1130 at night in some hospital up in Yorba Linda that no longer even exists. He paused the time. I mean, was he busy? Yes, he has lots of kids at home. He has a, a church of his own that he's leading. He has a wife that probably was like, do you realize what time it is? Where are you going? But he was willing to pause his rest, get dressed, get in his car, drive half an hour out of his way to sit with a hurting father, and that made all the difference. So this morning, I want to remind you that you are imperfect. You're in good company. You don't have all the answers. You're not supposed to. You can't save anybody. It's not your capability, but it's also not your job. You can't heal anybody, but again, not your job. But if you have said yes to Jesus and you have invited the Holy Spirit to begin terraforming your heart to become a better reflection of his heart, then you carry within you the one who can alter the trajectory of their lives, the one who can breathe new life into dead hearts, the one that can bind up the broken, re- return sight to the blind, drives out demons, and, b- and holds up broken people. And there are hurting people. There are hurting people sitting around you. You might be one of them, but there are also hurting people out there. And as you leave today, maybe you're going to go grab lunch. It might be your server that the Holy Spirit taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, just... Just lean in. You might go home. You might be a neighbor that you just happen to see along the way and the Holy Spirit just... Just take a step towards them. Be willing to look them in the eyes. Be willing to be interruptible so that you can actually stop long enough to hear what they have to say. And if they're not forthcoming with it and you feel prompted, lean in. How you doing? Okay. No, 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 no how are you really doing? I'm sorry I don't ask you very often. How are you really doing? How's your family? How's your heart? And be prepared for God to invite you to join him in the care of another human being. Here's what I will suggest might happen. You will find that it ministers to your heart as, as much as it does to the person that he prompts you to care for. So may we, and I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. May we be a a group of people as, as the body of Christ. We already know how loved we are. I hope you do. If you ever doubt that you are loved, just look at that cross and remember Jesus hanging on it going, I love you this much. You are loved. You want to know something that will really flip you? Your Father in Heaven loves you as much as He loves Merv. Just as much. And as a son or a daughter of God, He invites you to join Him in caring for the hurting. For the perhaps sometimes for the financially impoverished, but more often not for the relationally impoverished. May we never allow a sense of urgency to replace what is really important, which is relationships. I'm gonna pray in just a moment that God gives us the eyes to recognize opportunities and wisdom to know when he is inviting us to lean in. Would you bow your heads with me? Father God, I am grateful that you use imperfect people like us to be conduits of your perfect love into this hurting world. We recognize that there are hurting people all around us. Many of them are lonely and feel isolated. Even right now, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you might place somebody on our hearts, a face or a name, of somebody that you are inviting us to move towards. Whether it be somebody that we will see later today or a phone call that we can make to reach out and say, hey, you're on my mind. I'm thinking about you. Holy Spirit, would you give us the courage? Would you first... Help us to root deeply in how deeply you love us so that we have something to give to others because we can't give what we don't have. We don't want to minister out of the dregs. Would you help us to rest in how deeply you love us so that we can be conduits of love to others? And at the end of the day, Father, we pray that you would glorify yourself and that you would do what only you can do Binding up the broken. Giving sight to those who are walking around blinded by their own self-sufficiency. Breathing new life into dead hearts. I pray that you would invite us to join you in what it is you are doing so that our neighbors would know they are loved. And may that be our act of worship to you. We love you by loving our neighbors. We pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Let's worship together.
6: say
3: In. Trying to fade into the faces. The girls' teasing laughter is carrying farther than they know. Farther than they know.
4: Ever have one of those days uh, where, where you go, okay, don't forget to do this, and then of course you forget to do that. This is one of those days for me because I got so caught up in the message that I forgot that there is a tangible way to love a tangible group of people in our community that I know are lonely and isolated. Yes, it might be a, a neighbor is lonely and isolated, it might be a family member. It might be somebody in your school that other people are kind of ostracizing and God may be just tapping you on the heart and saying, hey, you know what? Get over yourself and move towards them. Caleb Ethan, I'm looking at you without looking at you. I'm still looking at you. Um, But there is a group of individuals in our community that are demographically isolated and that is uh, seniors who are in a care facility even before covid happened it was difficult to interact with them they they were forgotten and many of them were starved for interaction but with covid it has exacerbated things and made it far more difficult and so how can we love those who are isolated in a facility when at this point they won't even let you get near them if you have not been vaccinated or you're wearing a a hazmat suit or they simply say, you know what, you're not welcome in yet. And that is where there's an organization and there's a QR code on the screen. It's also in the second page of your bulletin that you can snap it with your phone if you have a smartphone Um, and it'll take you to a website where you can record a brief message of hope. It might be just an encouragement. It might be introducing yourself and telling them that you're praying for them. It might be a stupid joke. Dad, you've got plenty. (laughs) In less than a minute, you can brighten somebody's day. And what will happen is this is now something where they are getting technology into the hands of men and women who are isolated in these homes where they're not able to have visitors. And every time somebody uploads a minute long video, it gets sent directly to their iPad or their device. So you have the ability to tangibly love men and women whom our society oftentimes forgets about. And I'm reminded of the importance of that because I got to sit with Don Dickey in one of those homes and I walked by hundreds of other rooms full. Every single bed had two people not, not, not every bed had two people, but you get it. Like every room had two beds, and there was a person in them. And every single one of them needs to know that they matter too and that they are not forgotten. So, there you go. Send a smile to a senior. And if you're like, you know what, that's not enough for me. I actually want to get in there and see people who are shut in. Pastor Bill actually is meeting with people on Tuesday to talk about how you can specifically do that. And this was not something that was planned. He was already planning on having that gathering. This just so happens that what God laid on my heart to speak about this weekend dovetails with what he was planning to do on Tuesday. So if you're interested in that, Senior Sidekicks is a ministry that helps train people up to know how to come and sit with somebody who is terminally ill or is simply isolated and alone. So if you're interested in that, it's going to be 7 p.m. Tuesday night. With that, Lighthouse Community Church, I love you. I'm so grateful we get to do life together. I know that there are probably some of you in here right now who feel very isolated and lonely. And if that's you, I'm going to hang out for a little bit longer. I know Pastor Jeff is in the back, and there are others. You don't have to go home. If you're at home, you do. You're already home, so whatever. Forget about you. But you here, you don't have to go home. You can hang out and talk. I would love to connect with you. If, you, if there is a specific thing that we can be carrying with you, just write it on the connection card. There's connection cards in the seat back in front of you. Just let us know how we can be praying for you, how we can be holding you up. If you would like a phone call or to, to ha- have a time to connect during the week, we're in. I mean, as pastors, we only work half a day a week anyway, so like we got lots of time to fill. That's mostly a joke. Um... <laughs> Not a good one either, but I'm a dad, so you know there's 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 grace. Hopefully, with that, you are the church. Oh, by the way, you can take those connection cards. You can drop them in the white boxes in the back. Uh, That's where those of, of us who call Lighthouse Home drop our tithes and offerings. Those of you who are here, it's your first time. Please don't feel obligated to give, but we would love to know that you're here. Let us know that you came with that connection card. You can drop that in, and then, as I remind you every week, you are the church. This is our mission field. It starts the moment we step foot outside of our door. Now go be the church. Have a wonderful week.